This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Joy. Would you join me in a moment of prayer? Gracious God, may these words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be found faithful in your sight. For you, God, and you alone are our rock, our strength, and our redeemer. Amen. Well, it might be hard to believe, but it, we are already a month and a half into 2023, <laughs> and Lent is just around the corner. In fact, this Wednesday, on Ash Wednesday, we begin a new a season of 40 days where we uh, engage in uh, spiritual preparation for the joy of Easter. And, and Lent is that season where uh, we spend those 40 days uh, and we look inward within ourselves, uh, we repent of our sins, and we join Jesus in his long-suffering journey towards the cross. Now, doesn't that sound like fun? I heard a woo-hoo. I didn't hear any amens. <laughs> yeah, we're going to talk about that today. Now, the Lenten season, as, as we prepare for it, is often considered a season of self-denial. And there's this traditional practice, uh, perhaps you have engaged in it before, where, where you give up something for those 40 days. Now, I once heard of a youth pastor who was in his first year of youth ministry, and he was teaching his kids about Lent. It was the week before Ash Wednesday, and he said, okay, this is what we're going to do. I want you to put your name on the wall, and underneath your name, I want you to put uh, what you're giving up for Lent, which sounds like a great idea, but uh, because this was his first year as a youth pastor, he forgot to teach them what Lent was all about. So here are some of the answers or the things that the kids gave up. They said, uh, one of them is giving up homework. What's the point? <laughs> one of them said, I'm giving up being nice to my siblings. I see some hands over there. Uh, and then one said, I'm giving up brushing my teeth. <laughs> and I'm glad uh, that I wasn't a part of that youth group. Now, now I promise this is not our youth group. This, this is not Pastor Maria. You would never do this, right? <laughs> but the notion of self-denial, giving something up, is something we sometimes misunderstand. Yes? In fact, I was doing a little research this week on this Lenten practice of giving something up, and I was surprised to learn that um, although 71% of Americans say that they will attend an Easter church service, only 16% said that they were going to have a Lenten discipline. That's a big gap. Now, when you... Um, see the Catholics, the Catholics, the number goes up to 41%. They, they do Lent a little bit more. Uh, but even still, there is a large gap between participation in Easter Sunday and a Lenten discipline, which is curious to me because liturgically and theologically, like we said, these two seasons are intimately connected. Beginning on Wednesday, we're beginning a 40-day journey of spiritual preparation to, to prepare ourselves in anticipation for the good news of Easter, and yet there's this gap, 71% and 16%. It's a curious thing to observe. Now, I think when we talk about self-denial, 
one of the reasons for this gap might be that our understanding of self-denial is insufficient. I think sometimes we take passages like Matthew 16 and its duplicates in the other Gospels, and we turn Lent into a time of strict rule-following, austere self-denial where we deprive ourselves of God's good gifts as if there was some inherent moral and spiritual value in, in depriving ourselves. Now, there's something good to the practice of fasting, but if we're simply just denying ourselves something for the sake of obligation, this might be an insufficient understanding of what Jesus means when he says in that challenging text, Matthew 16, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself and pick up the cross. I think another reason why we're sometimes not sure about self-denial, and I think this is the bigger issue that I want us to focus on today, is that so often we have an allergy and an aversion to suffering. And if you look at Matthew 16, you'll see it's right there in the text. When we pick up this passage in verse 21, Jesus is having an intimate conversation with his disciples Now, his disciples have been following him for some time, and we're getting close to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, and Jesus knows that he's beginning to set his sights towards Jerusalem, and he knows what will happen there, death and resurrection. And here in Matthew 16, he's beginning to clue his disciples in on what's going to happen. He's saying to them, guys, you've been following me for some time now, but I want to be clear that if you continue following me, this is where I'm going. I'm going to a place where I will suffer and be killed in order to be raised again on the third day. Jesus knows what's before him. And Peter, when he hears this, like the the good disciple he is, he tries to give the right answer. When he hears Jesus talking about how he has to suffer, to suffer and be killed, he pipes up and says, no way, Jesus. God forbid it. It doesn't make sense. There's not possible that the Son of Man, the Son of God, should have to suffer. Can't be. You're wrong. Now, Peter, in his mind, he has a certain narrative of what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. And at that time, Peter and the other Jewish folks at the time would have had this idea that the Messiah was going to be the one to come and restore the Jewish kingdom to its former glory. The Messiah was going to be the one to come and overthrow the oppressive Roman Empire to be the one to be victorious and triumphant. The Messiah was going to be their king. And this is the narrative that Peter has as he's following Jesus. He hasn't quite gotten the full message yet. And so when Jesus says, I'm actually going to suffer and be killed, Peter has no concept of that. That's not in his narrative of what it means to be the Messiah. And so he says, God forbid it. No way, Jesus. You can't suffer. There's no room for that in Peter's narratives. Now, I think if we are honest with ourselves, we can relate a little bit to Peter because we too have certain narratives, certain ideas about what a good, fulfilling, happy life looks like. 
one of my favorite authors, uh, Father Richard Rohr, who's a Catholic author, uh, he calls these narratives that we have our programs for happiness. Programs for happiness. And what he says is that we all have an inner program for happiness. And these programs teach us that if we just execute the program exactly as it's prescribed, we will find the thing we seek. We'll find that ultimate fulfillment and our heart's desire. And the thing about these programs for happiness is that they all fail. They're all insufficient. Now, he says there are three most common programs for happiness, and I want to just touch briefly on these three. Perhaps one will resonate more with you than the others. But he suggests that, that the first primary uh, program for happiness includes the need for survival and security. Okay? Now, if your program for happiness includes survival and security, it's likely that you don't like change very much because change can be dangerous. You maybe don't like anything that might call you out of your comfort zone. We would just rather stay in this carefully curated place where we feel safe and secure and in control. Now, the second program for happiness involves the excessive need for approval, esteem, affection, and validation. People who have this program, it's possible for them to become addicted to the approval of other people. They crave connection and relationship. Both of these are good and God-given things, but they can so easily lose themselves in those relationships because they're looking to other people to give them validation and to approve their worth. The last common program for happiness that Richard Rohr talks about is the need for power and control. We sometimes call these people not so affectionately control freaks. Uh, they are the ones who have found security and safety in taking control of situations, perhaps because when they were young, they were thrust into scenarios where they had no control. And so they've learned that taking power is a way to feel like they're in control. And they seek that fulfillment and that satisfaction in building a hedge of protection around their lives. So these are the three most common programs for happiness. Security and safety, affection and validation, power and control. Is there one of those that resonates more deeply with you than the other ones? Now at their foundation, all of these programs for happiness, they're only survival mechanisms. They're things that we've learned to try and survive, and there's no shame in having a program for happiness. Peter had a program for happiness, and I think in a way we all have a program for happiness. But the problem with all these programs, like I said, is that they inevitably fail. They don't make good on their promises. And one of the reasons why these programs always fail is because it puts the locus of our happiness and fulfillment outside of ourselves. No matter what it is that your program tells you to seek, whether it's security, validation, or control, we realize at some point in our lives that these are out of our control. We cannot guarantee our security. We cannot control what other people think of us. I've tried. 
And there are times in our lives where we are forced to confront the hard truth that in the face of circumstances, we are powerless. We might have these things in certain moments, but if the quality of your life is dependent on having these things external to you, you will always be a slave to something that is outside of you, something that is out of your control. The psychology world calls this codependency. But the second problem, and and here is where we, we get back to Jesus, the second problem with these programs for happiness is that more often than not, than not, they have no place for suffering. On Friday, I was getting lunch with a friend of mine, um, and, and she's moving to another part of the country, and we've known each other for almost 10 years, and so we were reconnecting for the first time in a long time uh, to uh, just reconnect and share uh, before she moves away. And um, Something that her and I have in common is that 2022 was a really hard year for both of us uh, because long-term romantic relationships ended for us. Uh, And now the circumstances regarding those ended relationships are different for the both of us. Our stories are not the same, but but the pain (laughs) of the experience is similar because in both of our cases, our programs for happiness failed us. And as we were sipping our coffee and eating our lunch and, and talking about our experiences, we, we both came to the realization together that one of the weaknesses of the church, at least the Protestant church, is that more often than not, we don't know what to do with suffering. At best, we simply say, grit your teeth, white-knuckle it, and get through it, hopefully quickly. And at worst, we say that suffering is prescribed by God to teach us a lesson or, or to punish us for our sin. Now, we don't teach that here at Aldersgate, but you don't have to look too far to find that out there. More often than not, our programs for happiness don't include an allowance and accommodation for the reality that suffering is part of the human experience. I'm not trying to be pessimistic here or all doom and gloom, you know. Life is not all suffering. That's what the Buddhists say. We don't share that perspective. But to be human is to experience, at times in our lives, suffering. If you've escaped it so far, I'm happy for you. But it'll come. And when it does, if we don't know what to do with it, if we can't accommodate that in our programs or happiness and in our theology, well, most people, when that happens, they just come to the conclusion that God doesn't exist or God isn't good or simply God doesn't like them. And who can blame them for thinking that when our programs for happiness have no place for the reality of suffering? This is why I often say that our grief support group here at the church is one of the most important ministries we have. It's not the largest group. It doesn't bring in the most members into the church, but it is the most important because it helps people incorporate the reality of grief and suffering into their lives. And it's transformative because it leads people not around suffering to avoid it, but right directly through it, because we know that through suffering on the other side is new life. But more often than not, I think we find ourselves like Peter, not sure if there's a place for suffering in our walk with Jesus. 
And yet we have this difficult text before us today from Matthew 16 where Jesus clearly says, the Son of Man, the Son of God, must suffer and die to be raised on the third day. Now, it's an interesting question and one that theologians have grappled with for centuries. Did Jesus have to suffer? Was Jesus' death and suffering on the cross necessary for salvation? Now, there's a lot of answers to this question, okay? So you can spend a whole life diving into this, but I want to suggest for us today that the answer is yes. Jesus did have to suffer. Not to appease an angry and vengeful God who needed a blood sacrifice, but to show us the way God works. To show us that what God does is transforms even the deepest and most painful experiences of our lives. And friends, I think this is why Jesus came to show us through his life, death, and resurrection that, tr- that suffering can and will be transformed. But it requires a little bit of self-denial, and it might require giving up your program for happiness. Now, I want to touch back on Peter here in closing because his story doesn't end when he tries to tell Jesus about his life. It's kind of a misguided attempt to tell Jesus what he's meant to do. And after Peter says to Jesus, God forbid it that you would suffer, Jesus quickly pushes back. He rebukes him. And he says, get behind me, Satan. (laughs) You are thinking with your human mind. You're thinking with your program for happiness, not with the divine mind. Okay? Now, when he says, get behind me, Satan, I've always thought that to mean like he's in trouble, right? He's saying, Peter, you're getting it way wrong. And in a sense, that's true. But there's something far deeper going on when Jesus says this that I think unlocks the whole meaning of this text for us today. Because when you look at the Greek phrase that Matthew uses, everything changes. And I want to teach you that Greek phrase today. It's opiso mu. Can you say that with me? Opiso mu. There you go. You know some ancient Greek. And in this passage, that opiso mu is translated, get behind me, which kind of has a bad connotation, but in other parts of Matthew, its more literal translation is used. Follow me. And in Matthew 4.19, when Jesus calls his disciples for the very first time, including Peter, he tells them to opiso moo, to follow me. And here again, when Peter struggles to understand how suffering can be part of Jesus' journey, Jesus says, opiso moo, follow me. He doesn't cast him out, but he invites him into a deeper and more transformative discipleship. He invites him to get behind him and follow him. And Jesus knows where he's going. He's headed to Jerusalem and to the cross. And he says, Peter, if you want to experience the true transformative God, follow me. Come and see. And I'll show you how God works. That it's when we surrender our life to God that we truly find it. When Jesus says, deny yourself 
and follow me. He's not talking about giving up chocolate for 40 days. He's talking about surrendering your program for happiness. He's inviting you to surrender your sense that you need to be in control and in power because here's the truth, friends. Life at some point is going to show you that we are not in power, that we are not in control. And here's the thing about suffering. I don't want to glorify it. I don't want to romanticize it. It is hard, and it's, part, it's a part of life. But suffering, when we experience it, has this ability to break down our programs for happiness, to break down our illusions that we are in control. And it brings us to a place where we have one or two options, I think. Either let our hearts grow bitter and resentful or see suffering for the invitation that it is to follow Jesus to the cross and to find that suffering can be transformed into a doorway to new life. This is why Jesus came. This is why he had to suffer, and this is what he came to teach us, that God is a God who transforms suffering. It makes no sense. That's why it's called the upside-down gospel. Because we live in a world that says, climb the mountain as fast and as high as you can. Do everything to find power and control and validation that's, that's the way to fulfillment. But Jesus says, no, the way up is the way down. And if you truly want to experience joy, true contentment, true peace, and true love, o piso mu, and I'll show you the way. It might feel a little bit like suffering. It might be a little bit painful because Jesus might ask you to give up your program for happiness. And that can be painful because it makes no sense. But if we follow him, we will find through the cross into resurrection and into new life. So where does this leave us <laughs> as we begin this Lenten journey in just a few days? Well, I hope you hear the invitation of Jesus to Opiso Mu to follow him into a deeper and more transformative faith. Now, if you want to give up something for Lent and be part of the 16%, I, I fully support you in that. If that helps you move closer to Jesus in these 40 days, go for it. But maybe you need to do something else to follow Jesus in a deeper way. Maybe you want to participate in one of our small groups that are beginning on Wednesday. I'll make a shameless plug for the one that I'm leading it's on Brene Brown's book, The Gift of Imperfection, Wednesday night, 6.30, in uh, room 15 downstairs. This would be a great way to explore your programs for happiness and to discover what it means to follow Jesus. Maybe there's something else you're going to do, but I hope you hear Jesus is saying, there is a deeper and more transformative path ahead. But you've got to follow me, and you have to trust that if you move through the cross, you will also discover the truth of resurrection. I want to end uh, with just a few words from 
Richard Rohr because he says it better than I can. Um, So I'll end with this, and I think these are words that Jesus very well could have said himself. That in the upside-down gospel, we suffer to get well, we surrender to win, we die to live, and we give it away to keep it. Thanks be to God. Amen.